And uh, there's a kind of uh, a tension in my mind because really what I want to talk about is on the biggest macro sense, life is amazing. And some things are like this and some things are like that, but they'll balance each other in the great beyond. But on the other hand with that is beyond the great beyond, like uh, I remember years ago someone said to me, um, I was distressed about something and they said, but you know, in the sphere of the cosmos, what does this matter? Uh, and I, I said, well, in the sphere of the cosmos, it doesn't matter. But I don't live in the sphere of the cosmos. <laughs> I live, you know, at 45 Laurel Grove, right, you know, where I, you know, I, I live here. And, uh, and so it just doesn't work that way. I can think in the largest sense we all come and we all go, but while we're here, what happens to us matters to us. It seems sometimes so strange that we're here so briefly in terms of cosmic time and things matter to us so much and things become so dear to us that uh, I, I, I just think that's an amazing thing about uh, being a human being. There are all kinds of um, poetic ideas about uh, why it's better to, in Buddhism, about why it's better to be a human being than any other level of, uh, uh, of consciousness. In, in terms of a Buddhist spectrum, there are, uh, I think, seven levels of consciousness from uh, de uh, deva realms, uh, beyond deva realms, angel realms, beyond the angel realms, and uh, then human realms, and then animal realms, and then uh, uh, hungry ghost realms, and uh, unspeakable realms. But it comes actually from a, from a earlier civilization view of uh, transmigration of souls through different levels, uh, uh, through different possibly realms of being. But even if that's not um, uh, a model that engages your mind, the part of that model that engages my mind is the Buddha saying that the human realm was the best realm <coughs> to be born in, not the angelic realms or the Brahman realms above it. But in a human realm, because in the human realm we have compassion and empathy and we can, we can actually transform our consciousness and that we have that movability in them. In the angel realms, they don't have any problems. There's no place to go. You're an angel forever, which uh, is not uh, as thrilling to me as the idea <laughs> that this is, a, uh, this is a realm in which we are uh, programmed with the possibility of really transcending uh, whatever um, uh, unwholesome states might arise, and that the cause, the, the purpose of practice, um, is really to learn to uh, have such an acquaintance with wholesome states and unwholesome states, and such a clarity about that living in wholesome states of mind is the end of suffering and that unwholesome states, you know, it means it's much nicer than saying woeful states, but that unwholesome states, the states like greed and lust and aversion and negativity and revenge, and that the mind is in a terrible suffering space when it's filled with any of those, and that there are states of uh, gratitude and generosity 
and uh, honesty and compassion that uh, clearly as I say them to you and they run through your mind, would you feel picked up from that? I mean, those are, those are the states which your mind is completely at ease and that we can learn to recognize the one and the other and make a choice between them. I, I, I often say to people that I think in the Eightfold Path of Practice that we learn early when you, in becoming acquainted with Buddhism, uh, in the middle three um, uh, path parts, which are uh, listed as wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, we talk a lot about mindfulness and what's wise mindfulness and concentration and wise concentration. And we kind of skip over effort usually as if, you know, it goes without saying you should make an effort. Why not? Effort sounds like a good thing to make. But that's actually not what the Buddha meant. And it's very clearly, it's very clearly put out in the Buddha's teaching where he says this is wise effort. Wise effort is to notice four things. Notice the presence if there is, of wholesome states in the mind. Rejoice in that, solidify them, and cultivate more of them. Notice the absence of wholesome states and say, whoa, I have to cultivate some wholesome states. Notice the presence of unwholesome states in the mind when they're there and say, whoa, these are unwholesome states. I need to do something to cause these states to disappear, to apply some remedy. Notice the absence of unwholesome states and say, good, no wholesome, unwholesome states. I'd like to keep them out. It's actually four specific steps. It's not just make an effort. It's make those efforts. Uh, so it's very clear to me. It's like, a, it's like having a GPS in your mind. It says, don't go there. That's not a good idea. Go this way. That's a better idea. I really like to have a mind that's keyed to... Um, Watch out for all the decisions I'm going to make to see if that's tending in that direction or that direction. should be like my GPS. If it doesn't like where I'm going, just recalculating. And then you please take this next right turn. And if I don't, it says recalculating again. And it never gets mad at me. It always has the same nice tone of voice. But it seriously doesn't want me to go in. I would like to have that installed in my mind. Somebody, somehow, mine often tends to be a little bit late on the uptake, and I hear about it from my mind, but not exactly on the spot. <laughs> what I wanted to talk about, and I kept changing my mind as, as the morning went on, especially as when we were doing sharing, I thought about where I would start. I know where I want to end, though. So we'll see where I start. How many people came to hear Adyashanti on Saturday? Oh, not so many of us. So I th there were um, about 300 people here. How many people have ever heard Adyashanti? So a few more, okay. Some of the same people who came back. <laughs> uh, so Adyashanti is uh, one of those people currently in the greater teaching scene uh, who, of course, we could describe him just as himself, but is in a category of teachers like uh, Byron Katie, like Punjaji, like uh, Eckhart Tolle, people who, uh, on their own, seem to have been able, with some practice, uh, Adyashanti did a lot of practice in the Zen tradition, um, 
Punja uh, uh, did a lot of practice in the tradition of Ramana Maharshi, who was his guru. Some people just by themselves, like Byron Katie, seems to have had a breakthrough in consciousness, to have had a particular uh, view of things. Suddenly the, the, the world as it appears to most of us, which is a world of self and other, seemed to them so clearly a world of um, unity in which all the different manifestations of life are temporary manifestations of life arising and passing away, but not unconnected to the whole. Sometimes described as each wave in the ocean is its particular arising, but it is still part of the ocean. And each of them in their own way, uh, as I understand them, presents a, a, a way of understanding that once the mind has understood that really if we could see clearly, we would see the absolute unity of all creation in all these different manifest, temporal manifest, manifestations. And if we understood that, that this is all happening and everything is happening in response to everything else, that uh, nothing, every, everything is arising and passing away and for its fleeting moment being uh, having significance, but that nothing is, is apart from everything else. If we saw that, we would have such expansiveness of mind that nothing would upset our fundamental understanding that everything is the only way it can actually be at this moment. And towards that end, it doesn't render us, and Adya was very clear about this, it doesn't make us passive, I won't do anything to uh, act in the world, because he points out quite correctly, not doing anything is also to act in the world. Mm -hmm. But to act always for the good out of compassion. That, that's really the only response to that kind of understanding of the world. So I was thinking about how to talk about that today. About, I would give people, because so many people came, I thought it would be a lot of you. Uh, but all, all the better, I can give you a uh, catch-up course. A little bit. I'm not going to say too much of what Adya said, because it's what Adya said. I'll tell you what, what my experience is when I go and hear a new teacher, like Punjaji or Byron Katie or Adya, all of whom I've met and admire a lot. I realize that having been trained in this particular um, uh, Theravada Buddhist understanding, uh, which I would go so far as to say the Buddhist understanding, of uh, uh, their uh, the the the, uh, the crucial that the crucial understanding is the understanding that this condition of life is by its very nature um, a condition of suffering because everything is being changed and lost and uh, we are accommodating our entire life if we're lucky accommodating well to our new situations. That's not a sad thing, that's just a thing thing. I remember saying to my, my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, uh, once I said, it's so sad. And he said, no, it's not sad, Sylvia. Uh, it's just true. So I said, well, you know, but it's still something. You know, it's not just true, finished. Uh, As so I've spent a lot of time thinking about what it is, and I think the word I'd like to use 
is everything that everything that arises is temporal. Things happen, and we lose uh, everything that's dear to us unless it loses us first. And that, uh, and we lose our youth, and we lose some of our dreams and some of our hopes. That's the nature of life unfolding. So we're really getting used to loss all the time. So is that a bad thing? It's a thing thing. Is it a poignant thing? I think so. I think so. Uh, all of, if we all said, tell me a moment in which you... Um, well, think about it. If I, if I were to say to you, tell me a moment in which you thought of something that you used to be able to do or something that you once had that you no longer had. Um, I used to be able to ski from the top of um, Alpine Meadows. That's a California slope. I used to be able to ski from the top of Snowmass Mountain in Colorado down to the bottom, which is really a several-mile ski, without stopping. And it's a, it's a significant mountain, and uh, it's a significant challenge, and I loved it. And I can't do it anymore. But I watch people doing it, and I watch it, and I feel, oh, that's okay. You have anything like that? <laughs> so there's a poignancy about that. And what do we say? We say, well, you know, I'm so glad I did it when I could. But then there are people who never got to do that, but maybe they got to do something else, or... I think there's poignancy about the, begin, the, the passage of time. So that we need to get used to the fact that life is poignant. Many of the people, many at this point, sometimes I think, once heard one of my older friends say, you know, most of my friends are on the other side now waiting for me. And I think to myself, at some point, I wonder, I, at the time I thought, well, most of my friends are still here in this world. But more and more of them are now moving into the next world, you know, and... Who knows if I'll meet them again or whether, how that works. But they're not in this world. I can't phone them up anymore. They, Whoa. But how in this life, challenged by knowing from the beginning, somebody said the other day, the challenge is over. At, you know, the challenge begins at birth. Because from then on, there's only one possible end. And you don't know when it's going to be, and we live in that uncertainty. But how to live in it with your mind uh, appreciative and uh, uh, being able to say, you know, I had this life. Last night, I went uh, to a, uh, uh, a party in San Francisco honoring a particular um, bass baritone who's currently singing the role of the Flying Dutchman in its current performance at the San Francisco Opera. And um, he's introduced appropriately as perhaps one of the, if not the leading uh, bass baritone in the United States or the world at this point, among the leading. And he's a very charming, enormously tall, big man, very personable. And he talks about having uh, been born in uh, 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 New Orleans, and he said one line in New Orleans. He said, so uh, I'm really grateful to you all, you know. 
And then he said, that's the only New Orleans talk you're going to hear, y'all. <laughs> so I'm not giving that up. <laughs> I can still say y'all. And then he talked about his own life and going from quite a, 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 a kind of humble beginning. He said, I lived in a difficult neighborhood. Someone noticed I had a voice at some point, and I wanted to be an archaeologist, but they said, why don't you study singing? And then here he is, and he's the leading bass baritone probably in the world. And he said, you know, I get up every morning and I open my eyes and I think, I'm so lucky. I'm so grateful. And he said, you know what I think about all the time? I think about the arc of things. And the arc of being a singer who can sing is shorter than a life. So it's going to be over before I am. And he said, really, when I get up in the morning, I think, wow, I can still do it today. You know, there's a way of holding things Coming back to what holds the mind up, so gratitude holds the mind up, uh, I think Adyashanti would have said what holds the mind up is not clouding it with confusion. Now that, I think, goes across all spiritual paths, which is really what I wanted to get up to, so I'm glad I'm up to it. Because I, I listened to him very closely. and um, He talked for a long time before I thought, aha, that was what I was waiting to hear. Oh, and the reason I told you that my, my, my mind is shaped both by 20th century psychotherapy, because that's when I learned to be a psychotherapist, uh, and actually even 20th century uh, Freudian psychotherapy, so that means a psychodynamic interpersonal, so that when people say, uh, uh, I'm this way now as an adult, uh, I'm afraid of intimate relationships with uh, men. And then you expect, I, my mind expects, that they're now going to tell me because I had a father or an uncle or this or that who did something terrible to me, not because I was born in Aries with Sagittag Sagittarius <laughs> rising. Uh, my mind will make a psychodynamic story for it, even if I don't hear the psychodynamic. I haven't heard the story yet. And if someone then tells me the story, and says, you know, my family was fantastic. My, all the men figures in my life were wonderful to me. I, you know, it's just out of the blue that I have this. It's like it can't fit, you know. I don't have the, I don't have the, the, the brain equipment for that, the, the, the puzzle pieces, because my mind is in that sort of a... So your mind, I think, one's mind, I think, is in a certain kind of framework of understanding and then if things fit in it, I, I know I've told you the story of meeting some people on our travels in some remote and exotic place 30 years ago, uh, 40 years ago, and liking them so much and admiring everything about this elderly couple. Really lovely, emulating them. And then they said, of course, last, it was a very upsetting time for us last year because we were very strong uh, supporters of Barry Goldwater for president. But, ah, because that didn't fit into my mind. You know, everything that I had ever learned had made categorized that people who are nice do not fit into that category. Now, I, since I've, I'm happy to say that the view that nice people don't vote for Barry Goldwater is out of my mind. Nice people vote across the, the spectrum of political opinion. They have different ideas. Many of them have different ideas than I do. If I read the New York Times, I purposely read the David Brooks, who usually has different ideas than I do, but who's a very good thinker and thinks things through. And 
I, and I like to hear the other point of view. So oh, I have to think a little bit here. But I think about it, so I have that paradigm. Um, I was going to tell you that. Oh, so when I listen to Adia, for instance, I'm listening to what about his experience fits into the pegs in the puzzle that, that I have here. He's talking about uh, how, in fact, his relationship to his life is one of ease and openness and uh, tremendous tolerance for uh, other points of view. And I, I was guessing that it was from his own personal experience of really uh, uh, what the Tibetans would call a shift of view, where he really gets it. Everything is the way it is because it's all interacting with each other and it's just different permutations. Different people have different thoughts because of different experiences. And there's no resistance to knowing that. And then he said, because it's resistance that... Uh, resistance to anything that blocks the clarity of mind to see things how they are. Said, and then he said the line that clicked me into his way of thinking, and the line was, you can't be mad at anything. You can't be mad at anything. You can't, uh, it's the slightest bit of anger in your mind, it wrinkles up the mind, and then clear seeing is gone. Then I get it, because it echoes through, can you... The, you probably are thinking now, how did that echo through? Where? It echoed through the line in the Metta Sutta that says, uh, let no one uh, through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. And it also echoes through um, uh, the end of the, the Metta Sutta where it says the pure-hearted one by not um, uh, clinging. Is it clinging? By not holding to fixed views. That's exactly it. Not holding to fixed views. And the fixed views is this is good, this is bad. He is right, she is wrong. This is what should be happening, this should not be happening. All of those are fixed views. The, the view that's not a fixed view is this is what's happening. You know, it's what's happening. What can I do now is not a fixed view. That's a compassionate response. But as soon as I have a view, this shouldn't be happening. This isn't good. That was better. Yesterday's restaurant was much better than this restaurant. So-and-so said it better than so-and-so. All of those wrinkled in my... I actually, I actually keep thinking of... Um, it's probably because I have a very kind of uh, diagram-drawing mind. I think of, my, of the clarity of vision of... Um, oh, what was it? As of, as of this year, I no, no longer have the cataracts in, my, in my, both eyes. So I see colors as they actually are. And when there, were, when there were cataracts on this one, this one, it was blurry. didn't see very well. And I, couldn't see, I couldn't see to read across the room. And I was actually surprised by how red red is. You know, it gets slowly dulled over the years. And so the great gift of a cataract operation, if you're anticipating one, is it's surprisingly colorful, this world. So just really, at that moment when he said, you know, you cannot have a hesitating view, of, you know, you let everything in. The, the, and then it clicks into my mind because I also think of the definition of mindfulness. 
is a relaxed, open acceptance of experience as it arises with curiosity and with poise or balance and with the intention to respond in a way that does not create confusion, does not allow any of those crinkling the mind hindrances to arise. And anger is a very big crinkling the mind hindrance. So he says, um, in the Metta Sutta, it says, uh, uh, may all beings be at ease. Uh, those, that are, uh, those that are small, medium, and large, uh, near or far away, omitting none. Omitting none is the great radical thing to say. That he, he, and I, I think Adya said, you cannot say, I love the whole world and my brother-in-law not, or because of, <laughs> because of what happened with him or Saddam Hussein, or Hitler, or anybody else that you might think of, uh, current politicians that might come to mind. You don't have to like them. That's extremely clear. It's not about liking. It's not about losing your wits. It's not about saying, I wish these people did not hold sway in any politics. It's about being able to say, you know, this person who has another view, I really have another view from this person, but uh, may they also be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Why not? That my ability to wish the whole world, omitting none, that they come to the end of suffering and be peaceful and happy is not on behalf of the other people. It's on behalf of my peacefulness of mind. It's actually, you could think of it as a quite selfish or narcissistic act. It's actually on the basis of keeping my mind uh, uh, a relaxed and open enough place so that I will remember that I'm not here either. That really releases me from the liber- from uh, feeling that this is, that there's a separate me who lives permanently in this body, who hears things and sees things. It certainly feels like there's a me. I mean, I get up every day and I remember what happened yesterday, so that it feels like I'm a person with a memory. If you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Says my friend, <laughs> I want you to name you. Says my friend Naomi Newman, <laughs> who is in my age category. We are lucky, Naomi. Long may we wave in that way. But... <laughs> but but I'm not the same person that I was yesterday. I'm that per- I'm whatever is making my decisions moment to moment is informed with the experiences of yesterday and the experiences of 50 years ago. So memory count, I mean that there is some sort of coding of memory in the brain, but there isn't uh sometimes I think of a representation of Sylvia like a little Sylvia uh, living in me that, that looks through the eyes and hears through the ears. And if I think about it a little bit, I think about the absurdity of, does it look like me? Or does it look like me now? Or does it look like <laughs> me when I was one or five or ten? And I realize, and this is so exciting, this is the parts that I wanted to read to you, brought all this poetry to read to you, because that part about omitting none, because I just said it at one point, he said you have to give up everything. 
to give up every view uh, that uh, every fixed view. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean it really doesn't mean forgetting what you know or forgetting what is pleasant to you or forgetting who you are or forgetting what's in your family. It means forgetting everything that, that separates you, every movement in the mind that says, not here, here I can't stay. So I'll read you some things. Um, this is a, a Jataka tale. The Jataka tales are, um, are stories uh, that um, date from very early on in the Theravada tradition. And um, they, the Jataka tales are stories about animals who uh, all do marvelous acts of kindness. And they're part of, uh, in my view, a mythology, but who knows, you know, uh, I uh, don't want to be attached to that view. I have a thought that it's a mythology. But uh, the animals in the Jataka tales all do extraordinary selfless acts of kindness. And one of the legends about the Buddha, which interests me a lot, is that in lifetimes before his lifetime as Siddhartha Gautama, in which he was proclaimed to have the Buddha with tremendous vision, that he... Uh, had lives as animals mm -hmm. who behaved in these various virtuous ways and that he was perfecting those virtues and there are ten of them and that he needed to perfect all those ten virtues until in the particular lifetime that he uh, articulated what his vision was as a Buddha, uh, he had perfected all of those ten paramis. Paramitas is what they're called in the Theravada tradition. And the word paramita means having gone to the beyond, passed over the end. He came, perfected them. Once upon a time there lived in a forest a great being in the form of a woodpecker with brilliant feathers of many colors. Not only was this bird unusually beautiful, but he was also unusually kind and intelligent. He was like a physician to other animals, keeping watch over them and giving them good advice so kind was his heart that he could not bring harm to any creature, and thus he lived only on berries and sweet flowers. One day, while he was flying through the darkest part of the woods, he spied a lion rolling on the ground, his mane dirty and tangled, his cries of pain pitiful and sad. Oh, king of beasts, what has happened? Have you been hit by a hunter's arrow? Have you been wounded by a buffalo's horns or an elephant's tusk? Is there any way I can help? Oh, physician of the forest, oh, beautiful bird, I have got a sharp piece of bone stuck deep in my throat. I cannot swallow it down nor throw it up. I am in terrible agony. Please help me. The clever bird quickly thought of a way to aid the lion. He found a stick just the proper size and told the lion to open his mouth as wide as he could. He then placed the stick between his top and bottom teeth to keep his jaws apart. Boldly, the physician bird entered the lion's mouth and hopped to the bottom of his throat. With his long, fine beak, he gently worked the bone fragment loose and pulled it free. As he came out of the lion's mouth, he kicked away the stick, and the lion's pain was ended. Filled with joy, the lion thanked the woodpecker again and again. The bird was as happy as the lion. 
knowing that he had removed the pain of another. The happiness of others brought him great joy, and he cared not whether he was thanked or praised. Sometime later, it happened that the woodpecker had been unable to find food for many days. He ate, ached with hunger as he flew from branch to branch to search in search of berries or even sweet leaves. Then the woodpecker spied that very same lion beneath the trees, feasting on an antelope he had hunted down. So hungry was the woodpecker that he wished for a morsel of the lion's meal, but he did not ask for anything. He only landed nearby and watched, hoping the lion would remember him and offer him food. Indeed, the lion recognized the woodpecker who had saved his life, but being greedy and proud, he did not understand the sweet nature of the woodpecker. Why should I, the mighty lion, bother with you, little bird, he snarled. This food is mine. Is it not enough that you're still alive after entering the mouth of a lion? I can devour anything I please. Now, away with you, before I lose all patience and eat you in one bite. Don't you feel mm, on that lion? I think it would be a better story if the lion said, Aha, I remember, you are my woodpecker. I was disappointed when I read that. (laughs) The woodpecker soared straight up into the sky, showing the lion the freedom and power of birds and speaking to the lion in the language of wings. High in the clouds, he met a sky fairy who had been watching their encounter. Oh, exalted and most beautiful bird of birds, why do you allow the lion to insult you? Why do you not respond with anger and revenge? You have the power to blind him in a flash with your beak or swoop down in an instant and pluck the food from his very teeth. Oh, enough of such talk, replied the woodpecker. The way of anger is not for me. I simply help the lion in order to end his pain not to gain a reward. If he chooses not to be kind in return, then I will simply leave him alone. I did not help him in order to be thanked. So if he does not thank me, why should I care? It is enough that I have helped my friend. But great being, why be kind to those who are not kind to you? How can you call that greedy lion your friend? Kindness regards everyone as a friend. Even those who do not understand kindness, replied the woodpecker. I count as friends all those I care about. Every animal in this forest is my friend. Whether one animal is kind to me one day or unkind to me another day matters not. With so many friends, there are always opportunities to bring joy to others. You are a true and constant friend, exclaimed the sky fairy. For your heart never changes, no matter how you are treated. How noble you are, woodpecker. How the animals must admire and love you. If your heart is gentle and true, all beings would gladly trust in you. If you count as friends everyone you meet, your happiness will be complete. So, it's sweet, isn't it? It's also true. It's also true. I said last week that... um, I love the 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 uh, the idea of there's a particular meta chant that begins with a line, "May I be free of enmity and danger," which when I first heard it, maybe twenty twenty five years ago, I thought it referred to uh, that it was kind of an amulet that if I was out in a 
scary place. And I said, may I be free of enmity and danger? That meant that may, nobody would come after me with enmity and, or danger. And I'm convinced, or at least for me, that means may I be free of enmity and the danger that such enmity would pose to my peace of mind. It's extremely, it's extremely hard. Um, do I want to tell you about this? I'm having, uh, it's, I am involved in a long, uh, long going, it's going to be on the tape too. Uh, I'm involved in the, with a health insurance company that doesn't want to pay a claim for some significant bill we occurred that is covered by the policy. And writing to insurance companies tends to be a very, very disgruntling experience. And it's very hard for me to keep on writing to the company or calling them or talking to people on the telephone and not having enmity arise in the mind. It just is. And if I look at it and if I say to myself, listen, sweetheart, you're just frightened that they're never going to pay it. I am. So, but then I think to myself, okay, what's the truth? They're either going to pay it or they're not going to pay it. And if they don't pay it, it'll be disappointing. And it, you know, it's, a, it's an extra thing that we hadn't planned on because it's a significant amount. But on the other hand, there won't be anything that we can do about it. So it's either happening or not happening. And it's not life or death. It's just what it is. So maybe instead of getting all wigged out about it, I could just send another op-ed to somebody and work a little harder for single-payer insurance. But it's, it's so seductive, especially when you're right about what you're angry about. <laughs> because there's a righteous indignation. You have a right to be angry because they are wrong and you are right. But however right I am, I am suffering. As long as I let that anger take a hold in my, in my life, I was thinking about other places that might give me the same information. This is a book called The Path of the Just. It's written by Moshe Chaim Luzato, who was a Kabbalist in Svat. Was born in, uh, he was born in Italy and uh, made his way to Israel in his lifetime several centuries ago, many centuries ago. And this is called The Path of the Just. And he talks about developing watchfulness in the mind, which, as far as I can tell, is mindfulness, just really paying attention to every single moment as it arises. Uh, and he's talking about in order, really, to live in the sense of the grandeur of God, which is the language that this old Kabbalist would use, uh, you have to see everything that contracts the mind so that you don't see the grandeur of God. Part of, the, part of a daily prayer liturgy for Jews says, um, uh, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is full of God's glory. The whole world is full of God's glory. The whole world is full of God's glory. And some of the mystics taught that if your mind was open enough, what you saw 
It's just the glory of creation. Look what's happening. Not what's happening, but that it's happening. Look at this amazing thing. This ball hangs out in space, doesn't fall down, it's in its right place. Every day the sun comes up where it's supposed to come up. The geraniums make geraniums on the geranium plants. Genes work, your children look like you. The Krebs cycle works, thinking works, memory works, love works, reproduction works. It's amazing. And things happen that are not always great. There might be uh, uh, famines and, and droughts and uh, windstorms and hurricanes. So not everything is a pleasure in creation, but everything is amazing in creation. So, and these particular mystics who could live their whole life with saying, wow. <laughs> yeah, every once in a while, especially when we visited Jerusalem and talked to our friends in the, uh, uh, in the modern progressive, but firmly... Uh, looking to make Judaism work as a religion, as a transformational religion, will say so-and-so, our particular teacher, is so, lives so in the awareness of the glory of it all that he can hardly say a prayer, that when he says the first word of the prayer, prayer will begin, uh, praise God, and he'll say praise, and he'll get so carried away with the notion that his mind just stops there and he stays in rapt awe for a half hour before he can say, God. <laughs> for, so it takes a whole day for him to finish morning prayers because he's not up to there. So I, when I think about those stories, I feel bad that I don't live like that, you know, that, uh, that I can look and have a moment and say, wow, it's amazing that we're living here and the next minute be annoyed at somebody because they're crowding on the freeway. How to keep the mind, for, it's, if I ever wrote again, I would write a book called It's Incredibly Easy to Become Annoyed. It just, you know, it is. because that's the main thing. But annoyed is just a step-down form of anger. Annoyed is a fixed view. The fixed view is it shouldn't be happening. He says, uh, so this is Moshe Chaim Luzato who is talking about crinkling the mind. And about, uh, I just said that Adya said, you can't be mad at anything. Here, uh, Luzato is saying, can't be mad at anything. So well, this, let's think about anger. An angry man. About an angry man, it can be said, if one becomes angry, it is as if he serves idols. You think about that. It means if you become angry, then your attention is all consumed Seriously, think about you have you call up somebody, you call up the insurance company, and they say uh, we can't find your form, which you submitted six months ago in triplicate or something. In that moment, your entire mind zooms in on that. Is that not what happens? You know? Or they they pick you pick up the phone and they say, "Would you hold for a moment, please?" And fifteen minutes later, you're still holding. And you can't hang up because you think, now that I hang up, they'll pick up the next minute. And uh, it's so hard in that moment to say, you know what? It's not good for my blood pressure to get, you know, I could just as well chant the Metta Sutta. Let's see how many times can I chant the Metta Sutta before they pick up the telephone on the other end. That would be a good way. Huh? 
<laughs> and said, you know, it'll be the end of time, I'll still be standing here chanting. <laughs> and so, the, you know, uh, the, 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 it was really, he goes on to say envy as well. So envy as well is, a, is hijacks the mind, which is lust, envy, greed, I need what he has. said, so it's so lacking in wisdom. If you have the thought, uh, I need X that my neighbor has, my neighbor's family, my neighbor's wife, my neighbor's bigger field. So if, you, if you're thinking that, that's a mistake in thinking. Uh, or I want that. So that's a mistake in thinking because the truth is he's got the field and you don't. And it's, it, it, it turns out, it's, the language he uses is not language that most of us use because we don't think in those kind of terms. But he said, if you think about it, God gave your neighbor that wife and field and family and not you. And how are you to know about divine judgment? This is what you've got, this is what he's got. So you can just, if you're praising creation, that means praising judgment. We would say it differently. We would say everybody's karma is everybody's karma. You know, it's his field, not my field. You know, it gets complicated if you say it's divine judgment because then you think, well, purposely, what did I do wrong? But karma is the same as that. Uh, I'm thinking actually even in the times when uh, we, if we are old enough, we went, I don't think that people say this at funerals anymore, but it used to be, people would say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. But it was an understanding that certain things are beyond our, and it's not for us to question who knows why. Who knows why? Things happen in a natural world. Things happen this way or that way. But uh, to allow one's own mind to fall into, uh, it has to be my view. And Adya said the line, you have to give up every view. You have to give up every anger, every resentment, costing not less than everything. This is T.S. Eliot. You know what I'm going to read, of course. I'm sure some people do. Susan does. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, unremembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning, at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree not known because not looked for but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea, quick, now, here, now, always a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. That's the line, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. If a man is cruising a river and an empty boat collides with his own shif, skiff, even though he be a bad-tempered man, he will not become very angry. But if he sees a man in a boat, he will shout at him to steer clear. If the shout is not heard, he'll shout again and yet again and begin cursing, all because there's someone in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, he would not be shouting and not angry. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, 
No one will oppose you. No one will seek to harm you. Isn't that true? Boat comes loose from a mooring, bangs into your boat, maybe even significantly bumps it. You say, what can you do? Suppose someone comes out and they purposely, it's the same dent. You say, well, he purposely did it. Well, he did. But it's the same, you know. He, maybe, maybe the way of thinking about that is that that person who purposely bumped your boat had no more control about bumping, really, than the empty boat did. So beguiled was he with anger that he, in fact, so to speak, purposely, yeah. I don't know, I don't know if you have a question for me, but if you do, I'll wait. Now, what are we going to ask? son who is very compassionate and sensitive told me he was walking his dog in Central Park there was someone who probably a foreigner um, who had just arrived he had his suitcase he was sitting on the park bench and they had been dozing waiting for whatever hotel to open someone comes out of the bushes um, starts to talk to him um, uh, the guy clearly doesn't understand. There's a back and forth, and then the next thing he knows, the guy has sat down beside him, and after that, um, he starts groping in his jacket, and the, the person, the, the, the visitor just freezes with this, this horrified look on his face. Eventually, the man gets whatever he gets and goes away, and... It reminded Isaiah, my son, of a time when he saw a wasp and a cicada. And the cicada was much bigger than the wasp, but the wasp had his barb. And the wasp was crawling all over the cicada. The cicada was doing what he could to fend him off. And the wasp was just probing and probing and looking for the spot. And he found the spot finally, and bang, that was it. The barb goes in the cicada shudders and dies. And what kind of God would do, would create that kind of world? Mm. Both levels, the human level and the level that it reminded Isaiah. I was thinking, though, when you were starting to tell that story about what, uh, whether or not Isaiah thought to, be, to intervene there. Yeah. That's another question. I mean, was he? Was this other guy bigger than him? Did he look armed? What if Isaiah had shouted? I mean, that people take advantage of other people. He didn't have his cell phone. Yeah, people take advantage. You know. And the other guy was on there. It was very no. The other guy was bigger than him. It was very early in the morning. But that's sort of beside the point. He was. I'm just saying. This is what he observed. No, I I think if if the point that you're making is that people take advantage of that animals, including people, take advantage of the more helpless. I think that's actually, that's actually sometimes true. So I, I, it's probably more true of wasps and chiquetas than it is of all people. Not all people take advantage. But I think that the piece that, that really 
I think where it fits into what we're saying is um, in in uh, in the Livzato book. It says that does not mean that you should never reprimand a person or stop a person from doing something that's incorrect, but you reprimand them uh, without hating them. You don't have to hate to reprimand. You you a reprimand can be an instruction. We don't do that. Stop that. If you continue to do that, I'm calling the police. You know that it's not about letting everybody do everything. It's about really to, on behalf of all beings. Let me read you two more poems. Two more poems, I think. Because I, this is all very interesting to talk about, and uh, I think about it a lot. I, th- I thought about it particularly because Adia was here, and it's inspired me to really, you know what it inspired me to do? I'll tell you at the end what it inspired me. (laughs) This is called Otherwise by Jane Kenyon. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the wall and planned another day just like this one. But one day I know it will be otherwise. I think about that a lot. And... And wait, 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 wait. I think about the fact that um, how would I encapsulate the whole of what I listened to for Adya from the whole day? And what was he saying that uh, really I could hear an echo of in what we teach here, in what Byron Katie teaches, in what Eckhart Tola teaches, in what Punjaji teaches, in what Jesus taught, particularly of love one another as I have loved you. Uh, the message is always, uh, and in Judaism, uh, love your ne- there are two, the two citations, love your neighbor as yourself, and uh, do not hate your neighbor in your heart. So the, the inside and the outside, they, they point to the positive instruction and the other side. If you already are mad at... Um, you find yourself already mad at the uh, uh, spokesperson for the health insurance in the middle of the conversation, what can you do either to say, this person has a family, he's got a job, she's got a job, it's a hard job market, how do I know that she or he isn't as unhappy as I am about not being able to resolve this? Maybe they have as strong of feelings as I do about what's going on with health care. In the meantime, I don't have to be not nice to them because if I am, first of all, it's not going to get me paid any faster. And I, and I will have bad feelings from it afterwards that I did that. 
It's like when people call up and say, is this uh, Mrs. Boerstein? And you know that they're going to want to sell you something. And, um, well, let's take a minute. Oh, no, is it five? Well, just a minute. What do you do when someone calls and says, um, Phyllis, what do you do when someone calls and says, it's just the middle of the dinner hour, you're putting out the food? To sell me something? Yeah, that, no, they don't sell, I'll tell you. They say, is this Mrs. Well, I usually say, I can't, um, I'm sorry, I can't talk right now. I'm about to sit down to have dinner. You know, if you want to, call back later. All right. That's nice. I usually ask, who's that? Who's calling, please? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I respond from that place, and I might respond, I'm sorry, I don't have time for this right now. Yeah. Yeah. But I have at times even said when they keep talking, it's like, I really don't want to hang up on you, but if you keep talking, I might have to do that. So. <laughs> That's actually a nice thing to do. <laughs> I, you know, I have said to people, you know, I really am aware that you need to do this for a living, so I'm sorry yeah. that I'm going to have to end this phone call, but I really don't want to. I really don't contribute to causes over the mail. Send it to me in the post, and I'll think about it. So, Kathy. I know people who say when they say, uh, hello, is this Mrs. Jones? You say, no, but she's not at home. <laughs> you know, you think about, well, you know, that's a whole interesting thing. So, Kathy, when we came in, I said I was going to use what you said to start with, because Kathy has, a, you tell about what happened. You fell and what? Well, we talked specifically about are you going to get another? Is there a is there a um, an operation you can fix it? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, there's actually one thing I met somewhere else um, a couple of weeks ago, randomly, and so I see her here and it's amazing. And she's had a similar situation, and she had the surgery and had no good things come from it. And my doctor just told me it's a fifty-fifty shot whether it'll help, and I'm thinking it could actually do more damage, and it's. So the other piece, when we came in the door, and you said, well, maybe I'll just live with this for a while, because really I'm fine. And I said that, and then you said, you know, everybody's got something. So I said, you know, that could be the name of what's actually true, that everybody is part of the one and the waves are all part of the ocean, but all of those waves are different. So just to, just to see, suppose we take that premise, everybody's got something, meaning to say something that if a magic fairy came along and said, uh, you know, would you like, have anything you want to give away to the magic fairy? <laughs> I'm here with my... How many people have... How many people would not have something to give away? How many people would have more than one thing to give away? <laughs> but you, yeah. Sylvia, I've been distracted by the book on your right today. Is it the last acts of kindness? Yeah. 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 Y
It is. Uh, well, my earlier intention. Yes. She wrote that I recognized it, and uh, I wrote to her back. I'm halfway done with it. I think it's a remarkable book, and I recognize that you were talking about Judith. This is a book I've been reading this week. It's called uh, Last Acts of Kindness. It's a, it's remarkable to read. This is uh, written by, uh, uh, put together by a woman who's a, um, the head of a palliative care um, service, actually for Jewish Family Service of Marin. And palliative care is what you have before you get up to hospice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a lot, a lot of people in this county who are in a position of not getting out and not feeling good and being in chronic pain for long periods of time. And uh, their responses to what do you want to do now from moving on to hospice or not, or more morphine, less morphine, talking about it or not, are each of them tremendously touching. Each little vignette, you learn something else. So I'm halfway through, and I'll, I'll call her when I'm all the way through. But I, the, author? the author is Judith Redwing Kieser, K-E-Y-S-S-A-R. I can bring books um, to one of the Wednesday morning sanghas if you're interested. How many people would bring a book if the books came to Mohammed? Sure. You know? I, I think they're under $20. Are you coming? It's on Amazon. It would be a wonderful time to support her because she has just been diagnosed with a, an aggressive form of uterine cancer. I'm, I'm trying to find the, pl- the I can't find exactly the one I wanted to read to you, but not surprisingly, what turns out to be among the most successful interventions with people in grievously terrible conditions is talking to them about the truth of what's going on mm-hmm. and really encouraging them to talk about the truth that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, when, how many of you remember when, uh, when I was young, people didn't say the names of diseases. They said, you know, he, he has, the, the, the nearest they would come is they would say he has the big C, you know what I mean? Yeah. But that nobody said the word cancer, like if you said it, it would accidentally manifest. Um, or it, it was all superstitious. But to be able to say, you know, uh, that's what I've got. And for people to be able to know, okay, so that's what I have. If I take the medicine for this, it's not likely that I'll get cured. It's likely that I'll live three months or six months and I'm likely to be very uncomfortable for much of that time with the therapy, or I could not, and I won't live so long, but I'll be, you know, I won't be so nauseated or in pain or sleepy all the time. And extensive New Yorker article about hospice about two years ago. I think probably a lot of people read it because it was kind of, there's a lot of, and you know the statistics are that when people stop the treatments, the conventional more aggressive treatments, especially for cancer and go on hospice, the numbers are that people actually live longer on hospice when they stop treatment. They mm. live longer. So even that myth. Yeah, that's, yeah, 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 yeah. 
And you know, now that everybody is living longer because we have so many things, health aids, how many people here take a pill every day for one thing or another? One thing or another, one thing or another. How many, even calcium, okay? Let's put up your, okay, one pill or another, something that you didn't take when you were 13. Okay, calcium. Uh, how many people never take, it, never ever take any pill or, or supplement or vitamin or <laughs> one person? Okay. Everybody's taking something for something. I know. When children, when 18-year-olds pack to go to Europe for the summer, I don't take anything. They take a toothbrush, you know. When, you know, I, I, I seriously think sometimes, and I'm actually quite well. I have to have the whole half of my carry-on is with, you know, this pill and that pill. And I'm seriously well, so, you know. When are we back here, all of us? You're here next week, of course. Donald is back. But somebody has two weeks from now. I'm gone from I'm gone for two weeks. Oh, good. Oh, this is the best. Okay, I forgot. So, uh, how many people brought a book? Okay, not so many. Those people stand up. So, first of all, stand up. Second of all, yay. Third of all, no, stay up. Those people immediately go to those back tables and take a book. And then after they take a book, unless you don't like any of them, <coughs> take a book. And when they each have taken their book, we'll all go, do you like that idea? We, everyone is cleaning out their bookcases. You want to do it again in two weeks? Okay, so every two weeks, bring books. DVDs, CDs. Okay. All right, and you get to and you get to take them home. After these people are finished, you can all charge over. They have some really good books. And they're all free. No, no, no. Gardening, cooking. There's a couple of good cookbooks there. I think there was, a, so to speak, of a spiritual nature. I saw one. I saw a bunch of novels. Because the truth is, everything is of a spiritual nature. That's really true. Wait a minute. One question to ask everybody. It's really important. If you cook a turkey the day before Thanksgiving... How do you keep it freshest? Do you cut it? Do you put it in the refrigerator? Do you leave it out? Anybody have an answer to that? Please come to me. No, no one knows. You have to refrigerate it. You have to refrigerate it. Yes, foil and refrigerate it. Do you cut it or not? No, that's what I said. Thank you. You know what? Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
dot org slash donate.